Welcome back to Good Dirt, conversations with leaders in real estate and beyond. We are your hosts, Mike and Tom Greeley of Newmark, and we are happy to be back. Today's interview is a cool one for us for a lot of reasons. Jess Hughes, Managing Director and Regional Director of the Boston Region for Tishman Spire, has been a friend of ours for many years and someone who has really blazed a trail in the commercial real estate business in a way that you all can admire and respect. Before we hit record, Jess shared with us that her earliest exposure to the real estate development business happened in her hometown of Lowell, Mass., where she had a front row seat to the economic development activities that brought that city forward at an important time. The real estate bug really took hold, though, at Dartmouth, as you'll hear, with a serendipitous campus recruiting visit. We dive in in the interview, but Jess and the Tishman Spire platform have played an increasingly meaningful role here in the greater Boston market. And they've been in the news recently with the announcement of a $750 million construction financing package for the Enterprise Research Campus at Harvard, a mixed-use project that it's one of the most exciting development initiatives in the region and one of the largest construction loans so far in the U.S. in 2023. On a side note, in a quick connection to our last episode with Arthur Jemison, head of the BPDA, Arthur and his common ground approach were reportedly instrumental in breaking down a logjam between Tishman Spire, the Harvard-Austin Task Force, the BPDA, to get to consensus on the approval for the project's first phase, which is 900,000 square feet of residential, lab, hotel, and more. With all that as a backdrop, we appreciate you being back for season two. We have some really interesting guests coming up, including Jess, and hope you enjoyed these as much as we did in putting them together. Thanks for sharing these, as always, with your friends and colleagues. And thanks to our Newmark crew for their help, especially Connell Chamberlain, our research ace, and Reedy Warwick, one of our many, many star interns this summer. We appreciate it and hope you enjoy the episode. We are very excited today to be joined by our good friend, Jess Hughes, the Managing Director and Regional Director of the Boston area for Tishman Spire. Jess, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be a guest on the Good Dirt podcast. Well, you've been supportive of us since we got this going. We've been psyched for this conversation. So Jess, you've had a very interesting career from a lot of different perspectives. And today we want to hear about Tishman first, just if you give us a snapshot of the Tishman Inspire platform, and then we're going to go back into the beginning of your career. So let's start there. Sounds good. So Tishman Inspire is a global investor and developer. We've been active here in Boston for about 25 years, so pretty long history in Boston, but truly one of the global multi-strategy investors and developers, one of the earliest investors and developers in Europe, in China, obviously major markets in the U.S., in India, now in South America, and also a bigger strategy in Asia. And we do just about everything. Traditionally had been an office investor and developer, and I think that's what we're best known for, but truly have diversified significantly in the last 15 years. And so we do everything from condominiums like at Pier 4 here in Boston, multifamily lab with our breakthrough affiliate, now industrial. We're doing a deal here in the Boston area and lots of other strategies, senior housing, student housing, et cetera. That's great. And we want to go into all that. And it's definitely one of the great brands in our business where we've been in the business 15 years. But Tishman Spires is one of those names, even before getting into real estate, you have brand recognition. It's just such a titan. So very cool to be affiliated. And you're doing a great job of growing the brand here. That's for Thank sure. Thank you. So why don't we step back a little bit? We love to start these conversations with Jess, where did you start? Where'd you go to school? Tell us about your first job and we'll go from there. Great. So I grew up in Lowell, Massachusetts. 
Nice. Milltown. Already learned something. See, Lowell. There's a lot to like about Lowell. And when I was growing up, Lowell was in the midst of a revitalization and really needed it. It was a fantastic place to grow up. Also grew up, my parents are educators. My parents were high school teachers, not at Lowell High, thankfully. (laughs) <laughs> but that also helped and had just great opportunities to pursue a great education at Dartmouth. Very cool. Awesome. You get to Dartmouth. And first of all, I want people to know you played golf at Dartmouth, which is very cool. You can also play golf in Lowell. That's a new thing people might learn. <laughs> we have a lot of guests on this show who claim to be good golfers, but I'd argue Jess is top right of the heap. It's right up there at the top for sure. We'll get your gin number at the end of the interview and we can all look it up. I'm sure it's pretty impressive. 7.2, I'll just spare you. There you go. Pretty good. That's where I am right now. I checked it this weekend. (laughs) Big match. So you get to Dartmouth. You're involved with some of these internships, some of these projects. You'd clearly been bitten by the real estate bug. You graduate. What was your first gig in the real estate business out of college? Yes. So I went through corporate recruiting and looked at banking and sales and trading and all those things. And One real estate company came and recruited at Dartmouth. So I think I would have found my way there anyway. It was LaSalle Partners. And by chance, the woman that came up to do the recruiting was the woman who was leading the development project at Grand Central Terminal in New York City, the revitalization of the terminal, which was back in the late 90s. It was cleaning up the terminal. So people remember there was that beautiful ceiling was covered by a foot and a half of tar from the trains and cigarettes. There was no retail. It was just a $100 million bond issue by the MTA to do that project, which has been incredibly successful. So if you've been to the Apple store, any of the places there, that's all comes from that project. So this woman was on campus recruiting. So she came on campus to recruit. I was pretty smitten. I was like, wait, I can work in real estate. I can go to New York, can work on this project potentially. I went and interviewed and got that job. No surprise you got the job. It didn't hurt once again that I had my handicap and captain of the golf team on my resume. <laughs> yeah. Amen. Definitely helped me get pulled out of the pile. That's awesome. So you moved to New York area right after graduation. Yep, a week after graduation. And what was that first job? Like, what were you doing? So I was an analyst. And so I did an analyst training in New York and Chicago. I can't tell you how rudimentary the analysis that we were doing then was. My first day in the office was the first day that the office had internet. Wow. If that gives you any idea, I'm that generation that's right on the cusp of that. And then I got to work literally in Grand Central. We worked basically up in the eve. So you actually worked on that project. You saw it, you were enamored with it, and you actually ended up working on it. It was not the sexiest part of the project. It was really at the very end of it. And it was the startup of getting everything ready to open, getting the food markets open, getting the retailers open. I did get to work on it. Cool. So you were on the development side of LaSalle at that point. It was a development property management. They had this great path with train stations. So they did Union Station. They did Grand Central, a bunch of transit-oriented things that all happened at the same time. I would argue you said Grand Central wasn't the sexiest of projects. I would argue that's right up. That is one of the great destinations on planet Earth. I still walk in and get tears in my eyes. Every time I walk in, I think it's the most beautiful place on the planet. Yeah, that's cool. really cool. Do you close out that project and then they move you to the next assignment or how'd that work? I decided to move back up to Boston. You go back to Boston. What kind of role did you find? So I came to Boston. I came to interview. And this is another place that golf came in handy. I had one interview. I knew who one person was, and that was Tom Hines, then Meredith and Grew. And I went in and interviewed with Tom and, again, got a nice job offer. So you're two for two at this point. I was two for two. It's amazing. I had it pretty easy. He was fantastic. 
I interviewed with Tom, Dave Pergola Sr., Jim McCaffrey, and Kristen Blount. And I ended up working for Dave Pergola Sr. and Jim McCaffrey in the investment sales group at Meredith and Grew. And that became my first family tree in Boston. That's awesome. So at that point, you go from the development side, project side of the business into investment sales as an analyst, and you start your crash course in underwriting deals. Then that gets into your DNA. Obviously, you've had that for the rest of your career, which is great. And then I realized that, yeah, I became a deal person, I think, pretty immediately. Now it's maybe not, maybe it takes longer to get a deal done than to do a development now in the current environment. But you realize the time frame for development, the length of it, and I got pretty addicted. You're a piece of play person. Good characteristic. There'll be a lot of golf analogies today. So It was a really interesting time at the beginning. This was in the late 90s, early 2000s. And this is before the big names had come in and bought all the brokered shops. And then, interestingly, I ended up leaving Meredith and Grew with Jim McCaffrey to go to Trammell Crow to fill the hole that was left by Rob Griffin. Who's Rob? Rob Griffin <laughs> and team leaving to go to Cushman and Wakefield before then, obviously, the Newmark move. Yeah, exactly. Musical chairs had already started in the brokerage world. And Mike and I also started our careers as analysts, as entry-level investment sales guys. What was different besides the fact that you had more independent, smaller brokerage shops? What else was different about the business at that time? And this is an easy one. And I'm just curious because everything changes very quickly. And we hear stories from Rob about the 80s, 90s, what it was like in the investment sales environment. What do you remember then versus now? The landscape is so much more sophisticated now. And it has been really, I'd say it has changed so much even since the global financial crisis still the local brokerage firm. So it was still Spalding and Sly and Meredith and Grew and not the consolidation that you saw later. The pools of buyers, you just did not have the depth, the volume. And real estate wasn't as institutional. It wasn't as institutional. A lot of the action then was in the suburbs. And by the way, when you were planning to tour, these were CD-ROMs that would get put in these paper, these things called offering memorandums. <laughs> I mean, this is right around the era of Y2K. This is right when that happened. We used to print directions to get to get to projects and put them in the book and then mail them to you. You have no idea how different these days were. One of my first roles is with JR and Mike Frizzoli here. And they used to say, grab the phone book, look at the phone book, look who's hiring. That's the company you have to call. Phone book? Why don't you just go on the internet? <laughs> these were the early days. Argus was just getting invented and some of those things. So it was becoming more of a commodified business. But then you really had to work the phones and you only had so many groups you could go to. The insurance firms, some of the local investors, just a totally different landscape. But you were hooked at that point to the deal side of the business and underwriting assets of all profiles. You were across office. Across everything. I think that was the other thing. It was very, you just did everything. And I think that's still one of the great things about the Boston market versus a lot of markets where there is a little bit more, you could be a generalist a little bit more here than other places. Beacon Capital was a new, a newly, really the next iteration of the great tradition, I think, of the Leventhal investment vehicles. They had merged Beacon, the REIT, with Equity Office and then started Beacon Capital, I think, in 98 or 99. I went to work there after getting to know people there through them being one of the very few bidders active in Boston and active anywhere. And they were really one of the very first shops to really have a very successful series of private equity raises and truly one of the great investors, certainly based in Boston. So you were on a deal team and they were a counterparty to probably several deals you were selling. They plucked you to go to the principal side. That's the holy grail for a lot of analysts in the business. 
I got to know Jeff Brown, who has been an incredible friend and mentor and still, I think, probably the best deal person that exists. He's wonderful to work with and makes everyone in a deal feel good, which is always a good thing. Aaron O'Boyle, who was the chief investment officer at the time, was also a huge mentor and has been a mentor through my career and was probably one of the most prominent women in the entire industry at the time. At a time when there aren't many women in the business, even today, there aren't enough. But then she was a star. Super, super star. She was the CIO of the public company as well. Alan Leventhal is at the head of Beacon Capital right at the time. And that's a legend of the business. What was that like? You'd made your move to the principal side to a place that was really well known. That's the gold standard going to Beacon Capital. That was how it felt. It felt very, very lucky. So I was just a huge admirer. It was sort of a place that I have to pinch myself that I did get to work and get to work when Norman Leventhal was alive as well. Because I think if you look at the great Bostonians, he's the very, very short list of that. And working with Alan and the entire team there, just a lot of talented people. I was lucky to be there when I was young and also when there were very few employees. (laughs) So you just got to be on the front seat. There were only two associates when I started, so worked on virtually every deal across the country. And Beacon now is known as an office landlord, does a lot of life science and some other things. Then were they in that lane? Were they an office investor predominantly? Very much so. So those were in the early 2000s and up through, I think, the global financial crisis, really until Blackstone started raising these huge funds. Beacon had the largest office-focused funds in the U.S. And was Norman Leventhal at that time looking down over Norman Leventhal Park, right? Yes. Post office square right here out of our office. Was he actively in the office at that time? He would be in the office. If you were lucky, he would stand in your door and ask you if you made any money today, <laughs> which was so, so charming. He was so active and loved to be around, but mostly involved in his charitable affairs. It was very much Alan was the CEO. Very cool for a young person. But so in the l- just so lucky. Just to be around that is pretty amazing. And the first of many great leaders there, Alan after Norman and now Fred Siegel, who's a good friend of the firms as well. So it's a great place. For that time, so you're at Beacon, you get your feet under you, you are doing a number of things because it's still a pretty lean place at that time. Yeah, so mostly doing acquisitions and dispositions. We buy and sell. So early on, one of the great deals that I'll ever get to work on was the buying the Hancock Tower. We bought in 2003. This is cool. This is a great deal. One of the great deals, I think, of Boston history, but we bought... The Hancock Tower Garage, 200 Berkeley, so the old Hancock and 197, actually from John Hancock. And we made it more institutional real estate. So that was very much corporate real estate. We did a sale lease back with them. It was one of the first also um, syndicated equity deals that was done. When you look at the landscape, we did this in March of 2003. This was a time when the investment banks were actually brokering deals, especially the large deals. So Morgan Stanley was the broker on this. And it was such a big equity check. And it was so soon after 9-11 that no one was sure that people were going to go to tall buildings. There was a lot of fear. And Hancock occupied virtually very, very much of the tower. We did a sale lease back, staggered rates and paid. I think it was a seven cap on the entire deal, $910 million. And it turned out to be an extremely successful investment. Talk about pinching yourself. Especially for somebody who was a broker working on Suburban. I think they still have the Hancock Tower. Again, like Grand Central, it's the most beautiful building. It's so elegant. And also, if you had missed out on it, you'd see it out of the corner of your eye everywhere you went in Boston. It's a tough one. Well, it's a storied asset, but also that might have been the largest deal in Boston. I think it was. 
Yeah. I can't think of what would have been bigger than yeah. that at that point. Yeah, it's still up there, a massive transaction. That's a great deal highlight. We love those stories. You went on and did many other things at Beacon, which I think is pretty interesting. I'd love to hear a little bit about what the next steps for you at Beacon. Yeah, so I worked all around the country. Everything was very centralized, like the mothership, but it had offices in LA and now there are many offices, but worked on acquisitions all around the country. And then I had the opportunity to move to London. And so I moved over to London at the beginning of 2006. We started investing in London and Paris with an eye on potentially expanding throughout Western Europe and maybe Asia. The person was sent to be the cultural link. It was absolutely an incredible experience. So you're building out the Beacon Europe office. We hired local teams and then think it really is important to make sure that the culture of the company carries through. I see this, my work today. You have to have people that understand where they're investing. To have people in Europe be investing in Europe is probably a pretty important thing. Grew up in Lowell, went to Dartmouth, moved to New York, moved back to Boston. So you've always been in the Northeast. Then you moved to London. It's very, very cool. I did not have a lot of passport stamps. I barely had a passport. It was pretty cool. And being open to the challenge and saying, yeah, I can do that. I'll move here by myself. It was great. It's London. It's just such a cool story. It's the capital of the world. I was so lucky. So I was there. We did. We invested a good deal in 2006 and 2007 and 2008. And then global financial crisis came. And unfortunately, Beacon made the decision to not continue to invest in Europe. There was not a plan for me to be there more than 12 or 18 months. And then I ended up being there for almost five years. I think that's something that a lot of the Boston real estate community doesn't know about you, is that you spent four years overseas. Just disappeared. Very, very cool. (laughs) Any golf over there? I did get to play some good golf. That was pretty fun. Very cool. And got to go to some Opens, the Open Championship, multiple of those. I was thinking the other day about seeing Rory play in his first. Oh, really? Oh, that's awesome. He's a different looking person then than he is today. Tiger winning in 2006 at Hoy Lake. That was awesome. No way. That is cool. And you can get anywhere. You can take the train anywhere. Yeah. What was your favorite easy. course you played when you were over there? Probably in Ireland, La Hinch. I think that's the most perfect place. The weather can change 18 times in an hour. And that's on our father's list. I love it. That's a top one. And then around London, there's a sneaky amount of great courses like Sunningdale. The courses at Sunningdale were pretty awesome. So you, you finish your European sojourn, you head back to the United States. Euro trip. And what's next? I came back and there really wasn't a lane for me at Beacon anymore. It's 2010, 2011. No one's doing deals and everyone has their place and there probably wasn't a place for me to fit in. So I took some time off, which was one of the gifts of my life. And I would highly recommend I traveled. I think within a week I was in India. Within a week of finishing up, I was in India. I I used a lot of the miles that I compiled over the years that I've been there. By the way, my handicap, I remember when I left, was a 13. And my goal was to cut that in half by the time I started working again. Did you? I did. Nice. And you've kept it there. So that was good. And then I kept it there. So that was fun. I think I played 110 rounds of golf and I went to like, I don't even know how many countries. I would recommend that to everyone. I would recommend it. That sounds good. So that was pretty great. And then when I was looking at what I wanted to do, Boston felt so different to me in a good way in 2010, 2011, when I was back here, than it did when I moved in 2006. Despite the market not being in a great place. The market wasn't a great place, but you could just feel that Boston was different. I don't know if it was winning all the championships or if it was the biotech industry taking off. 
it felt way less like a backwards Red Sox hat and flannel shirt town. Well, the Greeley brothers had the started Greeley in brothers real estate, came. too. That must be it. The mass hole temperature had been turned down a bit. I am one, so I can't say too much, but it felt really, really different. I don't know. There was just a better vibe. Boston felt good. Boston People was evolving, were, you know, for sure. All I thought was, I want to be here. I missed it here. I love it here. And I want to see how I can go deep. And brokerage seemed like the best opportunity for that. And because I had worked in investment sales, I knew that the best way to build a network, the best way to know where the bodies are buried, the best way to look around the corner, I think truly is in doing that. And had the opportunity to go to JLL and the capital markets group there. I had worked a lot with JLL overseas and seen what the international franchise was like and thought, well, this is really interesting. And Ben Haller, who's a good friend from Dartmouth, pulled me over there. That's awesome. You had a great career stint there at JLL. We were very happy when you decided to go back to the principal side. <laughs> God. We all reached out very quickly Man, to tell you so we were hard. excited about that. So you get through, I think that was five or six years. Had you been getting the itch to get back to the principal side? Yeah, I really I loved the team. It's so competitive. It's so hard. I've been so many places that I have a lot of friends other places. And that's hard, too. You're competing with your friends in a lot of places. And that's one of the wonderful things about the Boston market as well, is that it is the most collegial real estate market in the world. Like, there's nowhere like this where you could be across the table from your friends trying to win the same thing and then be happy for them, but a little bit bummed. Oh, there's but, still the competitive uh, edge under the surface, but, but you're totally right. That run up from, I guess, 2012 to 2017, that was an incredible, incredible run up and really where Boston became, I think, the center of gravity for the institutional investment market. And again, clearly you were a star and you were working on some great deals and you were across the table from some great sponsors and great buyers. And then it seems like at some point, Tishman reached out. And again, you were plucked to go run a pretty major outfit here in town. So tell us about how that happened and what that was like. Tishman Spire was a company that I knew about before I was in real estate. Really iconic to me, best in class operator, really cutting edge. 30 Rock, Yankee Stadium. Exactly. There's some really cool things. And I had gotten to know people have also worked at Tishman Spire here that have gone into really good things in Boston and other places. When the opportunity came about, I thought it was a great fit and really exciting and also thought that there was a lot of room for growth for Tishman Spire in Boston and that I could do a good job leading and growing the portfolio here. And you absolutely have. We're going to talk about some of the highlights and some of the things that you're working on. But tell us a little bit about since you got there, I think it was 2018. You took over 2019. Is that yeah, right? January 2018. So it's a little over five years. How has the company changed? What have been your big focuses? What are your big initiatives? What have you been up to? And we want to get into some specifics too at some point here. I would say, first of all, the company, Tishman Spire has changed. The leadership is incredible. Rob Spire, I, I think, is truly visionary. Can I tell my Rob Spire story quickly? No. I don't know if you've heard this one. <laughs> I don't know. We might need to cut this. <laughs> he'll, it's nothing against okay. him. He'll actually like it. He might remember it. I'm sure he remembers it, but... We we're selling a site in South Boston, which you'll remember over on Dorchester Ave. And it's an urban industrial, windswept, dirt swept, tough site, but in a great neighborhood with a lot of opportunity. We're on a tour and Jeff Wexler was there and the team set it up and SUV pulls up and Rob Spire gets up. I'm a pretty young guy in the business at this point. And Rob Spire 
other people we've talked about in this podcast, he is a legend. His name is on the door and he is one of my heroes for all intents and purposes. And so he gets out, we give him the tour. It's going really well. I'm trying not to be too salesy. You know how you balance as a broker. You don't want to push it too hard. It's going really well though. And we get around to the back and there's a chain link fence and we're walking around, pointing things out. We hear a dog bark and from about 200 yards down the street, a pit bull off the leash starts sprinting full speed toward our group, frothing at the mall. (laughs) Wexler's almost in tears. I think he was very scared. Climbing the fence. (laughs) Jeff was very, very scared. So this dog is charging at us. And I had the buildings that we were showing were vacant, big old industrial vacant buildings. So I had a big mag light, a big heavy mag light. So I'm like, this is my opportunity. I'm going to save, gonna save everyone. Rob Spire's life. And that's going to be it <laughs> for the rest of my career. I'm going to save Rob Spire's life. I'm standing there holding this thing up. The dog is about 20 feet away and its owner yelled to and it went away. But we were all it a little nervous. Scary. It saw you with the mag light, So Tom. that's my Rob Spire story. Maybe he'll remember it, maybe not, but that I'll is remember it. horrific. I would have died. <laughs> it was fun. Yeah. One of my favorites. That is why I had to spend the whole first two years that I was working at Tishman Spire convincing everyone that South Boston was not actually the departed and go hunting. <laughs> it was because of the And then we have evolved from that. Yes, 100%. There's not that many pit bulls anymore. Yeah, thanks for setting that expectation. You got it. So you guys have now embarked on several great projects in the market, but... The Tishman Spire brand has certainly grown since you joined, and this has been a great run for Tishman Spire in Boston. What has been the focus in this market? And you guys have actually evolved from what you originally were focused on in the Boston market. You've expanded into buying a number of types of assets and opportunities. Boston is the center for innovation and education globally, and that's what Tishman Spire wants to invest in. So across product types. Being focused on that and really making a case for it has been the reason that we've been successful here. Having the right strategies and being able to do some large mixed-use projects, I think, has also helped us. That's what's cool, too, is you've done so many different things, even within verticals. So within residential, you're doing apartments, but you also did some of the highest-end luxury condominiums in the city. On the life science side, you're doing spec development, you're doing build a suit development, whatever it is. You are active in these verticals across the entire spectrum. How do you keep all that straight? Is your team siloed? Are you a bunch of generalists? Do you all work together? How does that work? So we've grown the team a lot. The way that Tishman Spire is set up, the headquarters is at Rockefeller Center in New York, which is also, I think, a learning lab for the company, which is a really cool thing. So you're testing out like retail strategies and build outs and co-working spaces and all those things. And then We have regional teams in every place, and those are local teams. So in Boston, we now have about 30 people, but we're also vertically integrated. So we lease and manage on our own. We have a design and construction group that works with us. And I would say we tend to be generalists. So the right people for the right projects and the right roles. We have a dedicated team that's working on the enterprise research campus at Harvard and then other people that are transitioning from project to project as needed. And it sounds like you built some culture while you were over at Beacon in London. Clearly, you are the cultural core of Tishman here. And I'm always struck, or at least in the last few years, by how you've recruited some of our favorite people in the business. And it's a long list. I'm not going to name all, but people like Steve Morris and Lauren Rondo and Parker Strong and Max Cassidy, just an incredible group of young people in the business who, a decade ago, that was you. 
must make you pretty proud. It must be pretty fulfilling to build that team and have that core. This is the first time that I've ever had the opportunity to truly build culture. And I love it. I love our team. I think we have just incredibly talented people. I think it's bizarre that I am the oldest person <laughs> in the office. I don't know where, where uh, no adult how supervision. that happened, how I got to be that. Oh, <laughs> well, we can tell it's you. It's crazy. We're going to give you a really nice intro before we air this and all your accolades <laughs> yeah. will be shown. Super, super talented, curious, ambitious people that want to work on great projects. And so you have to find those people to really execute at a high level. And we've been able to do that. And also, I think everyone probably arrives pretty excited and full of steam just knowing that you're working for this brand and platform that is global and really incredible. So that's exciting for anyone in the business. I think there's some pride there. Also, just knowing that you're going to learn from other talented people, that you have an association with some of these like great brands and great names and great work, you're going to have the opportunity to work on, I think, like really special things. So that attracts a certain kind of person. Talk about team building. A good test, a good litmus test for what's a good team is when you walk around where we are and we're sitting on Franklin Street here and we're next door to 125 High, a Tishman-owned building where you also happen to office. And you walk in a Tate at lunch or you go get a coffee or you're getting a pack of gum, whatever. There's groups of four to 10 Tishman people together going to get lunch or going to get a coffee or sitting in your common areas, chatting about something, brainstorming about something. It's an incredible team. Thank you. And you travel in a pack. So it's a testament to the culture you've built. Keep it together there, but they... They are awesome. We can't all work with our awesome brothers, so. I don't work with my awesome brother. I work with my mediocre brother. You guys are living my dream. I wish I could work with my sisters. No, we're very But someone will be dead by the end of the day, so. There are days like that. There's no doubt. There are days when we know just to stay away or walk away slowly. To dive into a couple of strategies in Boston, maybe first on a macro strategy, the Tishman breakthrough relationship joint venture. Can we talk a little bit about that? Because. We see it. We see you guys in action. We've been Mm -hmm. involved in a ton of transactions together. It's a pretty cool partnership. It really is. So part of the reason that I joined Tishman Spire was that at the time they weren't doing life science yet. And that was part of my sell that you have to do that and we have to do it here. By 2018, I think as we like put the strategy together, realized you have to be differentiated because a lot of people are jumping into the sector. And how can you make sure you're not just another developer doing life science? And so The company put together a 50-50 joint venture with a family office called Belco Capital, which is just a tremendous group out of L.A., um, led by the Beldegren family, who have been incredibly successful entrepreneurs, scientists, who have really built life science companies. So they have a venture arm, a private equity arm, have created companies like Kite Pharma, have a local called Vita Ventures. We know how to develop real estate, but we don't know how to build a life science company. Most developers don't know exactly what a life science company is going to need or an early stage biotech is going to need to grow or how to read financials and understand who the successes are going to be and who maybe the ones that aren't going to make it because they don't have good management teams or good VCs. We formed the venture four years ago, have raised over $3 billion capital. Company has put together some great deals, and I'm really proud of the portfolio that we've worked on together here in Boston. But now is the time where you're going to see success and failure, where there had been a rising tide. And this is where I think that having that group and that focus on the actual science and the companies behind it is going to be really important versus throwing up a lab building. 
they're a fascinating family. We've had a chance to meet a few of them. And not only are they great investors, entrepreneurs, but they've changed the world. Some of the drugs they've conceived of and developed have saved lives, changed the world. So they're incredible people. Dan Baldegrun is the CEO of the company, and he's fantastic and also in worked at Tishman Spire, I think, for eight or nine years in San Francisco and New York. And so there was like a real cultural fit there. And I'm really proud that the first deal that was done was the 105, 105 West First Street, which we leased to CRISPR. Mike and I are both neighbors with at one Newmark. Point. You guys are neighbors. I think one of you wrote a support letter for the project. I did. I think I'm before we maybe bought the it. reason the project happened. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that. Uh, 195 West Second. Good job. Concerned neighbor. <laughs> very vocal there. That was a great. And Newmark, our platform was very involved in all sides of that deal, which was exciting. But what a great outcome. Maybe we should just talk about that sure. deal for a second because it's a great case study. Yeah, it really is. So it was actually, we bought permits that it completed. We, we already owned One Channel Center, again, bought from Newmark, facilitated that. Also was developed by CV, Dick Galvin and Aries, and also brokered by Newmark. At the time, first of all, we really liked that Dot Ave corridor and we really, really loved the Four Point neighborhood. And we had unsuccessfully bid on the channel side development, which related one, the GE site was being turned. And this might have been the real peak maybe for land pricing based on very good fundamentals and a really, really exciting location. And we saw the opportunity to buy these permits and be able to deliver speed to market. And the right size product, because we had a prior relationship, had done deals with you guys before and also done deals with CV and Aries. And there were some relationships there. We're able to buy those rights for a pretty big price per pound, I think 320 a foot, which now I feel a little bit guilty about because I think that was one of the comps that a lot of people have used took guts to do it and you had conviction. Again, you had a partner who understood the landscape and you had adjacency and parking garage next door. That also helps. That did not hurt. That helps your basis. So, But a great deal. We broke ground. We're able to get it permitted, finish the permitting process, which is no small feat in Boston. If you want to change even anything, we redesigned the building and we're able to get shovels in the ground in February of 2020 and then had our first tour with CRISPR Therapeutics the Friday before everything shut down. The Biogen conference, I think, was that week and had a lease signed with them by June of 2020. Got our financing done, thankfully. Delivered it last year and have recapitalized it now within the Breakthrough Fund. It's an amazing success story and you all did a great job. And CRISPR is somewhere in the mRNA. It had something to do with COVID vaccines and all the science that was going on at the time. I mean, the, the CRISPR technology is one of the real key technologies and CRISPR it's a really exciting company because they have just so many ways that they can go. It's about the therapies and not specific illnesses. It's an incredible company. It's amazing to me that you can develop the most cutting edge, state-of-the-art, build-to-suit life science building, and then half a mile down the road on the waterfront, you're selling out, again, you know, <laughs> some of the highest-end luxury condominiums. Also building a restaurant, Nautilus, which is a near and dear Ugh. The best. Venue to our heart. We love Steve That's my Bowler only and the team. contribution. I feel like to the was like, we have to uh, do this deal. That was a great contribution. <laughs> That's the best restaurant in Boston right now. It's awesome. Tough to beat. I love Woods Hill as well. And Kristen Canty is wonderful. And that project is so great. So that was all conceived before I got here, but got here in time for the delivery of the office building and the sale, which was very successful also with Newmark. That project, I think all of us are super proud of because that's the first development that Tishman Spire has done in Boston. So 
having that be successful really has set us up for future success. That's the first thing we've ever built. So you bought 125 high, Purchased, 100 bed. You bought never, those buildings. Interesting. built anything. So for that to go well and have a really good result there is given a lot of confidence, I think, for our investment committee and investors to do more in Boston. But yeah, the public realm there, I think, came out really great. And the resales there have been really good, too. So I'm happy for people that took it. And all of your properties, developments and assets like 125 high. We benefit being a store from the Tate. <laughs> but even you walk in and you have the new golf simulators for tenants. You have Zoe, which is a really cool concept, the clubhouse. And we had your girl, but she left. And I'm so uh, sorry. Judith. Great greeter. If Judith is listening out there, we're going to miss you in Boston. Your number one fan. The best greeter in Boston. She would welcome folks into the lobby of 125 High, but sadly, she's moving on. We miss her. Well, she did stay with the Tishman's Fire family, and she's gone to work at our newest development, The Spiral, in New York. I guess that's actually a promotion. Yeah, that's cool. She deserves it. It's interesting, though. Woods Hill and Nautilus, two of the most exciting right now restaurants in Boston. We love Nautilus. We'll make that very clear. (laughs) Amazing place. Link in the bio. Yeah, get there. But that helped with the branding of the condos, too. Announcing those two flags on the ground floor. People knew the Woods Hill brand, obviously, and people love Nautilus. And it's basically impossible to get a table at the original Nautilus on Nantucket. That's an interesting thing, though, for a condo building. The thought that you guys put into what restaurants, because you could have done a national chain steakhouse very easily in the seaport, and you didn't. Yeah, intentionally not. And I'd say the same even for the office building there. It was Tate and Greco, locally owned, smaller businesses. Doing the Nautilus deal, I will give you a direct correlation. We announced that deal and sales. As soon as they opened, I think we sold all of our remaining condos. So it was wow. so worth it to That's do that deal. Interesting. That's very interesting. The 105, we opened up a fantastic cafe called Vester. The 105 is now people's favorite place to work from home. And I am saying that in air quotes because it is not anyone's home. It is a lab building lobby with an awesome welcoming cafe. And people go there to work. People drive there from New Hampshire to work in that lobby. Vester is getting so much buzz. It is just the talk. And we have both lived in that neighborhood. That is not an easy neighborhood group to deal with. And there are some very vocal members of that neighborhood group. People are really happy with it. They are singing Vester's praises. I haven't spent much time there, but you did a great job there and did a great thing for the neighborhood and delivering that space. Yeah, it's great. And it's a minority and woman-owned business. As we are looking to create more inclusive, accessible spaces, that's the kind of thing we want to do more of. That's awesome. So we talked a little bit about the life science partnership with Breakthrough, which has been very productive. We want to go over and talk about your dealings at Harvard with the Enterprise Research Campus. Really cool story from the beginning. Obviously, a long-term phased project, but that was an incredibly competitive process just to get that designation. So maybe if you start at the beginning, if you want, because it's a great real estate story. A big part, I will say, another big part of why Breakthrough was formed was specifically to make sure that we had the life science background to be able to go after a big project like that. That's been a big pursuit. I think a lot of people in the Boston area have been waiting for that for a long time. And there's been a lot of starts and stops there. And We're thrilled that we're going to be the ones to really kick it off. But yeah, it was a really interesting RFP process. It was Tom Glenn, who had formerly headed Massport, went to head the Harvard Austin Land Company and created an RFP that was like bidding on public land. So it had a lot of the same interesting criteria. And so we really put together what we thought was a best in class team with really interesting architects that are focused on sustainability, resiliency and next level architecture. So we brought Studio Gang and Henning Larson to MVRDV 
and Scape, who's one of the really leading landscape architecture firms, to the competition. And if we really rethink what this could be, what will be the right nucleus for the next hundred years of Harvard's growth over here. And that's the lens that we've tried to focus on. And for listeners who need some context, this was a very, very competitive RFP process that the best and brightest were competing for. Jess and her team prevailed, but it's owned by Harvard. It's adjacent to Harvard Business School, adjacent to their new applied sciences building, the Kempner Institute, the Mark Zuckerberg funded Kempner Institute's being built there. If there's a center of gravity and growth for innovation and life science, this is it. And you are right in the middle of it. And we really believe that the outreach we've already had without we're breaking ground very imminently. The outreach we've already had is even in a market where it's a much quieter market, we're really, really thrilled. And high level, what's the plan? I know there's some residential, some hotels, some retail, whatever. So it's about a half a million square feet of lab. And so this is the first of two phases. We're calling it phase A. We have a name, but we're, that'll be a future podcast. We're not going (laughs) to put that out here. It's 500,000 square feet of lab space, a little over 300 apartments, 25% of which will be affordable, a hotel, which is going to be a really, really cool brand. And I think something that we need in Boston that will have great F&B, a rooftop bar. Particularly Um, in that neighborhood, there's not a lot of hospitality. An amazing mass timber structure that's a conference center, but we call it the treehouse. That actually it will be Harvard donor funded, but that we're fee developing for them. And then a really exciting green space as well. What you're going to deliver there will be incredible. But When you think about your career in the real estate business, the opportunity to pursue this opportunity, you think about, okay, this is Harvard University. It's Harvard. And this is a major land holding for them, which people have been waiting to see what they do here. They go out with an RFP process. Of course, the best of the best blue chip development firms and joint ventures in the world competed for this. There was no one active in the business you were not competing against at one point of that process. That must have been pretty exciting for you. You think going back to the Lowell High and helping with the Sangus Arena and, and growing up in this business, all these different turns, to be in that competitive process and for Harvard to say, this is the right partner. It's not like sometimes when we're selling an asset, it's pretty clear the metrics, how we're deciding. The criteria here was pretty nuanced. They wanted to pick the right partner to bring this campus forward. The Enterprise Research Campus of Harvard being the development partner there, pretty cool achievement. It was great. This is a great thing. Even for Tishman Spire, Harvard is one of the most globally recognized names on the planet. It's one of the best brands. Takes a lot for a Dartmouth alum to say that. I, maybe I should have applied, but <laughs> it's pretty amazing. The amount of effort and people that have worked on this so tirelessly, it's pretty incredible. It's funny. We were definitely considered an underdog in that process, which I think is funny, but we definitely were. We wouldn't have considered you an underdog. We're just talking out loud here and thinking about some of your stops along the way and the projects you've worked on. Grand Central, went to London. You're working on some of the most iconic projects in Boston, working with Harvard. It's a pretty impressive trajectory. You should be very, very proud. Super lucky. You're being humble as always. One thing we want to talk about a little bit is 2022 president of our Boston NAOP chapter. Very important group in the city and in the region. I think sometimes your upbringing and where you grew up and you saw the importance of economic development in the real estate business and the revitalization of Lowell. Maybe some of those themes you brought with you forward and gave you the background to go through your career, but also to be leading this organization. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience and tell us a little bit about your view of NAOP and its role 
in the local market? Because it's important. I think it's convenient to ignore any sort of organization like that sometimes if you don't have time to appreciate how important it is to us. But I think it'd be interesting for people to hear. We have some great organizations. NAOP is one of them. And I think especially now, the job that a NAOP does, not only creating social opportunities and educational opportunities and networking and those things, but it's advocacy. And it's not only bringing electeds to the table, it's bringing, making sure that our whole business is moving forward. That's a really important thing. And frankly, before I came to Tishman Spire, no one would have thought of me to be the leader of the Tishman Spire office. Things have changed a lot in the last 10 years. And the same thing with Lady NAOP. But NAOP has great leadership. There's been a really great cohort of people that have cycled through the leadership there. And Tamara Small is a great leader of the organization and does a lot, I think, to find a middle ground for our industry at a time where there's a lot of headwinds, regulatory headwinds, a lot of things out there. But at the same time, pushing all of us to, I think, we need to meet the moment. And I think we have a lot of developers. We're all trying to make the city and the state better. You mentioned you may not have been thought of to be the leader of Tishman Spire or the leader even of NAOP two years ago, 10 years ago. That's a reference to your gender and gender in real estate in Boston. How do you perceive that? How have we done as an industry advancing opportunities for women and what more needs to be done? And give us a scorecard at this point of where we are and where we need to go. Listen, I've been super privileged and lucky in my career to have had really good mentors that are men and women. I think we still definitely have gender imbalance and an imbalance of not enough people of color in our industry in Boston. And so we have to do better than that. You just look around the makeup of the city of Boston and the region around it, and that we are not representative necessarily of what the population is. And increasingly, our electeds are much more representative of the population that is electing them, by the way. That's an issue. That right there is an issue, much less that we need to be, I think, thinking about what our priorities are as investors. Last week, NAO posted a DEI best practices in commercial real estate roundtable with Jeannie Pinato, Tig McClory, Doug Manns, Leslie Cohen, and Andy Simpson. Really, really great roundtable. It was a great discussion. That's just an example of the kind of programming the NAOP's doing on DEI. I think there's some unconscious bias. A recruiter would just call the same people maybe for a job. People started, I think, in the wake of Me Too and some of those things, widening the apex. And then with the George Floyd murder in 2020, then the aperture widened even more with trying to look for different people. And I just look even at my own company. There are more women and people of color on investment committee. There are more women leading business units. I feel like I'm definitely seeing more women in trans. I always look at transactional roles. So who are the brokers that are doing deals or people making investment decisions? And that is not to say that marketing and human resources and other things are not like super important, but how does the money get spent or how do the decisions get made? When we have more people in those roles, that's when I'll think that there's really good progress. But there's no doubt there's like a much better cohort and there's like an absolutely incredible generation coming up. Just takes time to get there. Tishman Spire clearly sets a great example. One thing that I think of is you talked about when you were at Dartmouth, a female developer who's doing the Grand Central Project and comes to do some recruiting on campus. That was just lucky. A great role model, right instantly to start your career. By the way, also the project manager, Diana Prudeau-Brun, who then worked for Cambridge for a long time, was the project manager for the arena. Erin was an incredible person to see. When I was in brokerage looking at Marcy Griffith-Lober was an incredible person. 
Capidami. There were definitely examples out there of people. It's serendipitous in that the person that you saw at that career day wasn't in private equity or technology. She was in real estate. Maybe I'd be in private equity and yeah, making more money. Exactly. But yeah. <laughs> You'd be better off. I'm really, really happy to be in real estate. One thing you do at NAOP is consciously sit down and spend time around the table saying, how do we advance these goals? You know, these are really important initiatives. And that's one great thing. NAOP does a lot of great advocacy work, some of it on the public side, but also inward facing on the industry. Folks look to NAOP and say, okay, how do we advance these goals that we all have? Let's actually get down to some steps that can increase diversity in the business in general. How did NAOP view that during your term as president? And today, you're obviously still very active. I think it's been super conscious, making sure we're doing unconscious bias, providing tools for people, not just at the big companies that might do the trainings, but maybe at the smaller places that it's easier for them to do it collectively, unconscious bias training and other things, contributing to a DE&I collaborative, which is all the industry groups. So that's all of the Grub groups, ULI and NAOP together. And We've also raised a pretty substantial fund. So the last couple of years, the President's Invitational Golf Tournament and a number of other charitable events, the beneficiary of that has been the DEI fund. And then go out and parcel that out to groups like Project Destined and Rex and Crest and Builders of Color Coalition. First of all, raise awareness among our member groups on other groups that they can work with and then make sure we're bringing those groups to the table. How many times have you won the NAOP Golf Tournament? Only once, and it was last Only year once. when I was president. How fitting. The How fix fitting. on a rainy day where we only played 14 holes. <laughs> that's um, great. And I definitely picked a good team. That's awesome. Well, that's half the battle. You've picked a good team at Tishman, too. And yeah, thank you. You've got a knack for that. We moved away from some of the investment strategies quickly. I wanted to yeah. talk about residential for oh, a second yeah. because it's obviously near and dear to my heart. Very high profile and great acquisition this year in the Eddy, which we can actually see out the window right now. Beautiful asset, really great acquisition in a difficult time. But tell us what the plan is on the residential side. Is that the first of many? Are you building a platform? How does that strategy look? And we have a big residential business across the world. We have, I'm not actually sure. I should probably know exactly how how big it is, but we've done obviously condos with Pier 4, which was successful for us. Apartments we're doing at the ERC. So we'll have our first phase of apartments hitting the ground soon. But we've done a lot of residential in China and in New York City and in other places. So that's a place where we have a lot of conviction that there is a mispriced market right now. And it's where replacement cost is. Buying existing to me feels like a better trade, better returns for investors than if we can buy really great stuff like the Eddy, than building it. We couldn't agree more. And that's a differentiated product. And the projects you seem to be focused on are all in differentiated locations and they have a special factor. So kudos to you and the team for getting that across the finish Thank line. You. We hope to be involved in many of the deals in the future. We'd love to do more. We're in the fog of war right now with both investing, with understanding. I think our entire industry is in the fog of war. Really uncertain time in our business. And so I think as long as we can focus on making decisions that are based on not just that something is 60% less cheaper than it could have been two years ago. But is the underlying asset really great and special? We have more opportunities probably than we've ever had to make investments. And we have to be just as selective as we've always been. Disciplined for sure. As far as opportunities over the next 12, 24 months, you guys are being selective and thoughtful about how you deploy capital. But what's your hunch? You've been through a number of cycles. 
we're at an interesting point in the market. We're very fortunate to be in the Boston market. How are you viewing opportunities ahead? And you guys have some industrial strategies and you talked about multifamily and life science is going to start recovering with the public equities recovering, public equity markets recovering. So what are you guys seeing for strategy wise? I don't want to share too much of it, you know? No, I'm just joking. I really, I think I would love to do more deals like Daddy. That would be my dream if we had some more of those. <laughs> Give me a call. But no, I think we have to, across asset classes, just be incredibly mindful of what cycle we're in, of what kind of secular shifts are happening in the office market. What kind of trends are we seeing? Do we know how people are going to behave post-COVID? Are we really even out of COVID? Are people going to buy goods in the same way? We are always thinking about things. And thankfully, we have like a super debate. We debate everything. There's no easy layups. Even something like the Eddy went through some of the longest investment committees for especially for the size of the deal versus some other things we've done because we had to prove that the sky was blue, that we were actually on Boston Harbor. Putting a deal into Tishman Spire's investment committee is like defending a thesis. We have people from all over the world. We have people on investment committee from many continents that are asking very pointed questions and looking for holes. So it is not a herd mentality. You got to prove that your thesis works across the board. That's where your brokerage background helps a little bit too. You have thick you skin, you've it. pitched a lot, and you've sold <laughs> a lot. A lot of people so. have said no to me. If you've learned anything from brokerage, it's that a lot of people are going to say no to you. Well, on the cycle, we hear a lot, and I spend time in multifamily and Mike in medical office and healthcare, but there's a flight to quality in all asset classes, whether it's apartments or office buildings, whatever it is, there's a flight to class A, a flight to quality. And you look across your portfolio and it's quality through and through. So it seems like you'll be well positioned here in what's coming. Not that anybody's impervious to the headwinds, but you're a class A shop. So I think the outlook is good. It's a very, very challenging time, I think, for all of us. We're going to do the best we can. Yeah, amen. <laughs> all right, let's switch to some human interest questions, which our listeners love. I'll start, Tommy. Yeah, jump in there. I'm looking at my notes. I'm just going to shoot these from the hip. Can I, when do I get to ask you guys questions? Yeah, Somebody's yeah. going to have to turn the tables on you at uh, some point. Someday. Nobody wants to hear that. You guys are doing such a good job, though. Thank it's you. awesome. You're so, kind to say that. It's fun. We're enjoying these conversations and we're enjoying this one. We'd like to ask a couple of random questions of people. Any most memorable live music experiences that jump out to you? One of the recent really cool experiences though that I had with a musician is David Byrne from Talking Heads did a mural for us at the 105 with Artists for Humanity. Oh, really? That was a real pinch me moment getting the meet him and like wow. spend time with him because he's one of the coolest. He's an icon. As a child of MTV, that was pretty incredible. Psycho killer. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, it was awesome. Uh, was he cool? He was amazing. Yeah. Just like so cool. And is he a muralist? He's just like a polymath. He's an artist. He's an artist. He just does everything. You wouldn't understand, Mike. You don't yeah. get it. I was the artist in the Greeley family. Okay. Megan and I, my sister. All right. Well, it's really super fun. That's awesome. So we talked a little bit about golf earlier, and it's been made clear that you're an excellent golfer. Made clear by us, not you, by the way. We know your golf background. What I want to know is career low, career round, and where was it? It's kind of sad. It's only like a 75 at Vesper, which is where I grew up. What's sad about that? I've never, ever gone You're low. You're in the 0.05%. No, I've never, ever had one of those transcendental rounds where I just didn't screw anything up. Vesper's a hard course. I just am the kind of person that goes out and shoots between 80 and 83 every time. 
Like, that works. You're the annoying person that's really hard to play against because you're always finishing holes. I'll shoot a 47 on the front, but I'll shoot a 37 on the back type oh, of person. Drives me crazy as a competitor. What's your favorite golf course in the U.S.? Gosh, that's super hard. I have so many favorites. You can give us a couple. Honestly, I'm going to stay close to home. The country club is pretty wonderful and special, and I've had some really amazing rounds there and just think it's wonderful. I agree. And last year, the Open, I think, kind of cemented it. It was really cool to see it beat people up. <laughs> it definitely did. That was fun to watch. Yeah. The Open was awesome. It was so fun. That was really fun. What a fun. sports week. Oh, awesome. We didn't get a lot of work done. All right. You can have dinner anywhere in the world tonight. Any particular restaurant, where are you eating? We're going to exempt Nautilus because we've talked about it so much. Make your reservation. But it is great. It's really good. Dinner anywhere. God, that's another hard one. Am These I going are the hard-hitting journalistic questions these that, really, we really that we promised the listeners. I was not prepared for these, You weren't you guys. prepped on these. I feel like I would have come up with some really good ones. Honestly, I would be sitting someplace in Greece just having grilled octopus and fish and a salad. That would be a perfect meal. Jess, I'm boarding a flight to Greece in a week and a Are half you oh, with my wife good. on our honeymoon that we never got to take because of COVID. Oh, I'm so, so happy for you. That's I awesome. I will send you some photos, but I'm going to order the octopus. Honestly, something like that. That would be pretty good awesome. Good answer. That was well-timed. I've been to a lot of great restaurants, though. It's so cool. Well, you've been super generous with your time. We really, really appreciate it. We love working with you. We love working with your team. Thank you. And we know it's going to be a fun and long run. Likewise. Love you guys. Thank you. We want to say, though, when we're talking about more women being in the business, staying in the business, you've been a great role model for a lot of people. And we hear that all the time. And when you made the move to Tishman, I think there was a ton of people in the industry that were very excited about that, to have you at the helm of that Boston office. So kudos to you and your leadership in NAOP. People look up to you the same way you used to look up so and crazy. still look up to Erin O'Boyle. It's crazy, but I look around and my friends, a lot of my friends who we started at the same time and that are doing really good things. And that's across. That's not just my female friends. I'm just super proud of where people are and that they're leading by example. And I definitely feel a responsibility to be successful and do a good job to make sure that people know that they can do it. That's awesome. Great. Thank you so much. You really wonderful interviewers, <laughs> such lovely people, great Starbucks buddies and now Tate buddies. So thank you. You've been a good friend to us and a good ally. We look forward to continuing that for many years to come and people will love listening to your story and there's many more years to come of this. Thank you. Thanks, Jess. Thanks, everybody. This was awesome. Thanks. Thanks.